and turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John. We're going to be in chapter 2. Um, and while you're flipping there, um, I don't have to say much uh, to preface this other than saying if you've turned on your television at all this week, you are aware that courtrooms can be drama. Um, any of y'all ever watched court dramas on TV? Maybe Law and Order? You know, the, there's, a, there's only about a billion Law and Orders now. There's like Law and Order, there's Law and Order Criminal Intent, Law and Order SVU, Law and Order... There's a, there's a billion Law and Orders, and I think every single one of them has won an Emmy at some point. Uh, but there's, there's usually two, point, two parts to a Law and Order episode. There's the, the order part, which usually comes first, because you've got the police work. They go out, and they, they find the crime, and they make the arrests, and they look through all the evidence and all that. And so they do all that. There's the police stuff first. And then there's the law part, where you sit in the courtroom. And if you were to just turn the TV on mute, you would think there wouldn't be much drama there. That It's just folks talking. But you understand that once the evidence has been gathered and arrests have been made and, and, and folks are lawyered up and they're sitting there, they're not just talking. That very real things are happening. That there is a crucial question going on. Did the defendant do it or did they not do it? How can we prove this? If they did it, what's the penalty going to be? And depending on the crime, the penalty is usually huge. Usually on shows like Law and Order, it's life in prison, or it's you know, 25 to life, or maybe it's the death penalty or something like that. So it's really high stakes to, to determine whether or not this person did something. Well, scripturally, there's a courtroom as well. That eventually there's going to be a courtroom that all of us stand in. We're going to stand before God. And the question is going to be this. Guilty or not guilty? And if guilty, what is the penalty? We've been preaching our way through uh, an ancient document of the church that is not Scripture, but originally served as a summation of basic Christian doctrine um, so that early Christians who did not have access to the Bible that we have now, uh, all the way back to 140 A.D., it was kind of a quick sum up of what it means to be a Christian. And this morning we're dealing with the part of the Apostles' Creed that says uh, He ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty and from thence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. We're going to deal with the first half of that today, that He ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And, and you probably, if you've studied your Bible at all, you probably already know this, that He ascended, Jesus ascended after His resurrection. But have you ever sat down and asked, well, what's He doing now that He's back? What's He doing up in heaven? Well, we're going to talk about that today, and we're going to look at that from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So if you will stand with me out of the respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It's my little children. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, 
and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Father, I thank you so much that you have sent your son Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins and for those the sins of anyone who will call on him. Lord, I pray that you will work in someone's heart to have them cry out to their advocate today. Save me, Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. We have an advocate with God the Father Almighty. Now, we're going to break this down almost word, word for word this morning and see what do these words mean. There's some pretty big 50-cent Christian words in these couple of verses this morning. We got advocate, which is not necessarily just a Christian word, but it's, it's a word you don't use every day. And we got the word propitiation, which is most certainly a necessary Christian word. So I want us to just systematically work our way through these few verses and see what we can learn from them first. And I want us to start by looking at just the first half of verse 1, where John says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Our first point that we're looking at today, uh, please, let, let me give a little addendum before we go far, farther forward. Please do not shut off your ears after point 1. 2 and 3 are going to be very, very important. So if you only hear part of it and you don't hear the rest of it, it's going to be a very sad day. So I don't want you to have a sad day. I'm having a great day thus far. I want you to continue to have one as well. Our first point that we want to look at in this passage is that believers should strive for moral perfection. Believers should strive for moral perfection. John says first, he says, my little children. Let's look at these words. He says, my little children. Uh, the apostle John at this point, John's probably in his 90s. At the very least, John's probably in his 80s that out of the 12 apostles, John was the only one who did not die a martyr's death. He died of old age. Uh, and so John, at this point, when he says, my little children, there are not many people who aren't little children to him at this point. Okay, he's, he's on up there in age. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you. Well, what things has he written? Well, you'll notice that we are in the second chapter of 1 John. So the only thing he can be talking about is what he's already written in the first chapter of 1 John. So to sum up what he's talked about really quick, in the first four verses of chapter 1, uh, John says that he, the other apostles, and plenty of other witnesses, they knew Jesus very well. They walked with Him. They talked with Him. They slept in the same building with Him. They ate at the same table with Him. They, they rode in the same boats with Him. That They um, got assaulted by the Roman guards at the same time as him. that so They ran away. He actually got taken. They knew Jesus very well. They knew who he was and they knew what he taught and their testimony was credible. He takes the first four verses to tell his readers that. That guys, we're not making this up. This is not something that we just came up with because we thought it would be a, a get-rich-quick scheme. In fact, it, it had cost them quite a bit. In verses 5 through 7, John teaches that those who know Christ in a saving way walk in the light as He is in the light. That there's no darkness in God at all, so it's inconsistent to say that you walk in the light while persisting to live a dark lifestyle. So if somebody continues to walk in darkness, his claims of knowing Jesus are lies. And that's basic Christianity 101, that if you claim to be a follower of Christ, you ought to actually be following Christ. That your life should look like His looks. So, have you ever seen the little bracelets, WWJD? What, what would Jesus do? They're not my favorite things. I wish they had another one that was uh, WDJD. It was what did Jesus do? 
You know, whatever Jesus did, however Jesus responded to particular situations or questions, that's how we ought to respond. Uh, so we follow him quite literally. That what, how he responded, how he thought, how he spoke, how he treated people, that's how we're supposed to. And if we don't, then John says that's a very good reason to question whether or not someone's following Jesus. Um, think about it if you're going on vacation. I mean, I've talked to some folks this morning that just got back from vacation. That If you've ever gone on vacation with a group, have you ever been on a group vacation and there's like a convoy of cars rolling down the road? Have you ever done that and someone's the lead car and you're following them? Well, are they going to end up in the same place if a car decides they're going somewhere else and they don't go behind the first car? No. So you wouldn't in any sense say they're following if they're not going the same direction. Same thing with the Christian life. And then verses 8 through 10, John says, If we claim not to have sin in us, then we certainly have no truth in us. The confession of that sin is a precondition to its forgiveness. Claiming to be sinless is effectively calling Jesus a liar and denying the gospel. Because Jesus came to die for the sin that we most certainly do have. This is the first chapter of 1 John. That he is claiming to have known this Jesus. He is saying that if you claim to follow him, you should walk like him. And he is saying if you don't walk like him, it's enough to question whether or not you are following him. 1 John chapter 1 in a nutshell. Now, who would affirm these things with John? Believers or unbelievers? Believers would affirm these things with John. So he's talking to believers and he says to these believers that he's writing these things to them. Why? That they may not sin. He's writing this to them so that they would not sin. He wants to emphasize that those who are following Jesus should be living Jesus-like lives. If you think back to Jesus' life, did Jesus ever, in the smallest degree, in the most, quote-unquote, harmless of ways, did He ever sin? No. And yet John says, we should walk as He walked. So if Jesus walked totally without sin, how does that mean we should aspire to walk? Totally without sin. In fact, John went so far as to say, if you walk in darkness rather than the light as he did, you do not know him and you are a liar. So let's, let's apply this. <clears throat> and maybe you're getting a little bit nervous right now. Pastor, where are you going with this? That's why I said, be sure, don't, don't forget there's a point two and a point three. It is undeniably true that Jesus has totally eliminated the eternal penalty of sin in the life of a believer. If you are here today and you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are probably raising your hand and going, but wait a minute, Pastor, I'm not morally perfect. I know. I know that. Well, does that mean my faith is false? No. John didn't just write verse 1. It is undeniably true that if you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that sin is forgiven. 
There is no eternal penalty for that. We preach that unapologetically. I preach that unapologetically. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you, oh, well, man, that's just too easy. If I just preach that Jesus forgives everybody's sins, just like, man, folks will just live crazy lives. That's not the case. But B, listen, Jesus did die to forgive you of your sin. Every single one of them. All of them. He understands that you're not perfect. He was perfect for you. But, just because Jesus died so that He can forgive your sin, doesn't mean that that is a hall pass to sin whenever, however, just because Jesus is going to forgive it. Does that make sense? That we don't get to approach sin in our lives with an attitude of nonchalance like it doesn't matter, like it's not important. Have you ever found yourself just kind of shrugging off? If, if I say micro and macro, do you know what I mean? Micro is tiny. Macro is big. You know, have you ever found yourself kind of shrugging off micro sins like they're not a big deal? These little tiny sins. Like, they, they, you don't really, they don't bother you at all because in your mind you think, oh, well, that's just a little thing. It didn't hurt anybody. It's not that big of a deal. But it's these big sins, you know, like murder. For some reason, people, you know, define whether or not they're a good person in front of God by saying things like, I ain't ever killed nobody. Well, I would hope not. Um, you know, th- think of it this way. There's a big difference between, in, in a lot of people's eyes, sometimes in our eyes, there would be a big difference between something like open theft you know, felony. I think if you steal $500 or more, that's theft. Or grand larceny, something like that, felony theft. It, you know, there, there's a big difference between open theft and fudging a little bit on your taxes. That people think differently about those things. Why is that? Why do we approach sin that way? Emily showed me something neat she found on the internet the other day. It was a, it was a piece of art that somebody had made. Are, are you familiar with bar graphs? Like you look at bar graphs and they're tall. You know, you've got little short ones. There's not much of it. You've got really tall ones. It's a picture of a bar graph and it says how we view sin. And there's several sins increasing in level of severity that you've got like, you know, the little white lie and fudging your taxes a little bit. And over here the really tall bar is like murder. And then all this other stuff. And it says how we view sin. And you see the bar from the side. And some of them are bigger. Some of them are smaller. And the next one is how God views sin. And obviously God is above. And he's looking down. And all he sees is the top of the bars. And they all look the same. There's a difference between how we view sin. And how God views sin. From our point of view. There's big sins and little sins. From God's point of view. There either is sin or there isn't. That we don't, this view is problematic for us because it is totally predicated. It's the entire reason we think about it this way is that we think of sins in terms of their earthly consequences. That some sins are not as big of a deal because not as much is going to happen to you in this life because of them. And some sins are a much bigger deal because horrible things happen to you in this life because of them. You know, if you... Scratch somebody's car and don't tell them about it. By mistake, you know, something's probably not going to happen to you. You know, if you bash somebody's windshield in with a sledgehammer in broad daylight, yeah, something's probably going to happen to you. You know, we think of them differently, but God looks down and he says, you know, this person 
destroyed someone's property and didn't own up to it. And this person destroyed somebody's property and did own up to it. They both destroyed someone's property and and, and didn't do the right thing. There's sin in both places. To put it in in perspective, so that we, we start thinking about sin the correct way. We think of little sins and big sins in terms of their consequences. Think about it this way. What if Jesus never did big sins, but he only did little sins? Would he still be your would, he, would we still be here today? No. He wouldn't have been perfect. Y'all, as Christians, we need a perfect savior. We need a perfect Messiah. If Jesus never committed big sins, but he only committed little sins, he still committed little sins. He still does not it, it does not have moral perfection if that's the case. The truth is that both of these sins have hideous consequences. Jesus died for the murderer just like he died for the person who lied on their taxes. Jesus died for the, for the thieves on the cross next to him, and he died for the person that told the little white lie earlier today, too. That every single sin has hideous consequences, and that can be seen on the cross. So according to John, it is the mark of a believing, changed life that we do not live in constant, unrepentant sin. If you claim to be a believer and you can consistently sin without at the very least a a conscience that is not okay with this, you are walking in darkness. If Jesus walked in moral perfection, we should strive to walk in moral perfection. Look at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Do we ever look at Jesus and say, Oh, well, God has got grace on me. All my sins are forgiven. So it's not that big a deal if I just sin today. Paul says, Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus, into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ has, was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Walk as Jesus walked. And did Jesus walk without sin? Yes. So should we strive to walk without sin? Yes. All sin. Any sin of any magnitude, of any quantity. That we should hate sin. We should abhor it. And then 1 Peter um, chapter 1, verses 13-16, through 16, he says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, put on your armor. That's ancient Greek for put your big boy pants on. Put your big girl pants on. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient Children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. He's saying before you were saved, you walked around thinking your sin was not a big deal and that it was okay to just do what you wanted. He says, don't be those little ignorant children anymore. That now that you've been saved, now that you've been changed, don't conform yourself to that life anymore. Be different. And how how does he say we should live? But as he who called you is holy, who called you? If you're a Christian, who called you? God did. Is God holy? Yes. 
In fact, in first, this is not on your handout, but this is probably on the page next to you. 1 John 1, 5, this is, the, the, this is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. There is no sin. There is no evil. There is no wickedness in God. And 1 Peter says, as, as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in some of your conduct. In most of your conduct. In all of your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Y'all, grace is not an excuse to not make a big deal out of sin. That the reason grace is such a big deal is because sin is such a big deal. The reason that we can shout and sing, and the reason there is a song called Amazing Grace. I mean, y'all, the song is not named Modest Grace. It's not called A Little Bit of Grace. It's called Amazing Grace because it is so unfathomable that God would go to the lengths He does to forgive something as hideous as what we do every single day. Sin is horrible. So why don't we as a church make a big deal out of it anymore? When you emphasize grace at the expense of emphasizing how bad the sin was, you diminish grace as well as diminish sin. I'm pumping sin up and telling you how horrible it is and how much you should avoid it because I'm about to turn around to point two and tell you, but oh my goodness, grace is wonderful. So, just because, spoiler, point two, believers, you are not in this life going to achieve moral perfection. We should strive for it, but this side of glory, you're not going to achieve it. But just because you know that, doesn't mean you shouldn't, in the power of the Holy Spirit, strive to eliminate every single sin from your life that you can. Because the price that was paid for that sin was the blood of Jesus. Isn't that worth stamping sin out of your life? It is a huge deal. Not a little one. So believers... We should strive for moral perfection. We should never think we've arrived. We should never think, okay, you know, the Holy, Sp- Holy Spirit, you've done enough now. I'm, I'm decent. Uh-uh. No. The Holy Spirit, this side of glory, is always going to have something to work on in you. And let Him. So first, believers should strive for moral perfection. Second, believers will not in this life achieve moral perfection. Look at the second half of verse 1 in chapter 2. So first he says, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But then he says, but if anyone does sin. So it looks like, even though John says walk as Jesus walked, he seems to be conscious of the fact that y'all look in the mirror when you wake up in the morning. Ain't none of us Jesus. Right? None of us are morally perfect. If you claim to be morally perfect, there's your sin, you're lying. You're not. None of us are. 
I'm no closer to morally perfect than any of y'all just because I'm a pastor. We're all fallen human beings in this room. None of us are perfect. There's only been one perfect human being that's ever lived, and his name is Jesus. That's it. So there seems to be a possibility, probably a certainty, that all the rest of us are going to sin. So John says, but if anyone does. Now, I want to point out, I don't usually get into grammar with y'all, but I do get into grammar in Greek when something makes a, a, a difference. It makes a huge difference here. So, the word sin in chapter 2 verse 1 is used very differently than it and related words are used in the surrounding chapters. So, there are a few tenses we have here that I'm going to explain In chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, when John uses the word sin, or when he uses the word walk, walk in verse 6 and 7, so he says, uh, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, these words are in present tense. Now, present tense in Greek is a little bit different than present tense in English. You know, if I... You know, pick up this green, bright green highlighter. In present tense in English, I can say, I toss the highlighter. That means I do it right now. I presently am doing it. Present tense in Greek means I do it and I keep doing it. It's continual action. That if I use the present tense in Greek, he doesn't just mean I walk. He means I walk and keep walking. So you can read this as... If anyone, if if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk and continue to walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk and continue to walk in the light, okay, so it's continual action, right? In verse one, in in chapter one, verse ten, he he says the words uh, "have not." Sinned. I've got an ESV in front of me. If we say we have not sinned, that's in the perfect tense. In Greek, a perfect tense means something happened in the past and it has ongoing results all the way up into the future. So like I can say, <clears throat> any of y'all like barbecuing or putting things in the crock pot? I love cooking in the crock pot. We did a pot roast last week. It was awesome. So when I say... I have put the roast in the crock pot. Yes, I did it in the past, but that, that's going to have ongoing results right on toward 8 o'clock that night, isn't it? It's not just one action. It's an action that happened in the past that it's going to have results up to the present moment. So in verse 10, when he says, if we say we have not sinned, he's saying your sin is something that you have done in the past. Though you may be sinning currently, you have sinned in the past that has had ongoing results right on up to the present moment. So that's how he says sin there. In chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he uses present tense for the word keep. Um, you know, so this is you know, beyond the verse we're looking at, but verses 3 and 4, if we keep His commandments, keep them, keep on keeping them. Uh, walk is the same in chapter 2, verse 5. 
uh, it's present tense again. It's just like it was in, in chapter 1. And then in chapter 3, verses 6, 8, and 9, he uses the word sin, sins, sins, sin, and sin. Again, five times. They're all in present tense. Continual present action. You do it and you keep on doing it. And you keep on doing it. And you keep on doing it. But in two, chapter 2, verse 2, it's a totally different tense of verb. And we don't have anything like this in English. It's called an aorist. And if you think of time as a line, here's the way you can think about it. You think of time as a line. If you were to take your finger and go, boop, at one spot on that line, that just means it happens. It's not saying anything about what it's going to do in the future. It doesn't say anything about a continual pattern. It just means it was a one-off. It happened. It's not a pattern. It's not a habit. It just it happened. So John says in chapter 2, verse 1, he's not saying, believers, I write this to you that you may not sin and continue to sin. No, he's already said in chapter 1, if you're a believer, you should not be sinning and continue to sin. That's not a thing. He's saying, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. One-off. Breaks in the pattern of godliness where we fail. Instances of sin. And in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, but if anyone does sin, here and there, individual actions, this does not mark the pattern of a believer's life. The pattern of a believer's life is walking in the light. It's walking in obedience. Walking as Jesus walked. But you don't need to reference any document to say if you've been a believer, anybody in here who is willing to admit that they know Jesus and since they've given their life to Jesus, they've sinned. Put your hand up. Yeah. You've experienced this verse, haven't you? That you've given your life to Christ, but you've sinned since. It's an heiress. It's a one-off. So if anybody ever takes you to, to 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, where it says, whoever's been born of God does not sin... Don't let that make you doubt your salvation just because you can say, oh my goodness, I've given my life to Jesus and I did something wrong. That must mean I'm lost. No, it doesn't. It means you're an imperfect human being who has a fallen human nature and you're going to screw up every now and again. John knew that. Jesus knew that. So we should strive to be morally perfect because Jesus is morally perfect. But the good news is when we mess up, when we break that pattern of godliness, John says we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. Now what is an advocate? It's a lawyer. We're lawyered up. When you came to Christ, you lawyered up. Did you know that? You have an outstanding warrant to be picked up and taken straight to God's courtroom because of sin. And what happens when you give your life to Jesus Christ is that sin gets paid for. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So that Jesus Christ is standing before God the Father advocating for you, interceding for you, speaking on your behalf, saying, I know they sinned, but I paid for that sin. They're one of mine all their penalty has fallen on me. They are not to be judged for it. 
that we strive for moral perfection. We're not on this side of the grave going to get there. But Jesus advocates for us when we fail. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Paul says, who is he who condemns? Who's the judge in the courtroom? It's Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. Y'all, it's pretty hard to lose a trial when your lawyer is the judge. Isn't it? That's exactly what Paul said. If somebody's going to condemn you, who's it going to be? It's going to be Jesus. But Jesus is not going to condemn you because he gave his life for you. If you belong to him, you are safe in that courtroom. And then Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25, Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. What did Jesus do when he ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty? He is up there before his father. And anytime Satan, the great accuser, have you ever read Job? I, I hate the beginning of, of, I love Job, but I hate Satan in the beginning of the book of Job. Because he worms his way in, he's standing in front of God, and all the angels are there in front of God, and God sees Satan there, he says, what you doing here? Where have you come from? And he says, ah, you know, just walking around the earth. Seeing whose life I can ruin. And God says, really? Have you seen my servant Job? Look at how righteous he is in everything. Satan says, yeah, yeah. He's righteous because he's got it good. Let me take his stuff away from him. He'll curse you to your face. God says, okay. Touch anything you want except his body. We'll see. Except for us, when Satan steps in front of God and he says, well, let me tell you about this person's sin. Jesus stands up and goes, excuse me. And he raises his hand and that nail scar is out there for everybody to see. And he says, Father, no, no, he doesn't get to accuse them. I paid for them. And the father takes his gavel and goes, acquitted. Every time. Satan can't say a word. He can't do anything. Because you've got a lawyer that will never lose. Why will he never lose? Because when you sit down and you think about it, even though Satan is the father of liars, he kind of has a point about us, doesn't he? When he says, hey God... Look at that sinner. That might be the one time he doesn't lie. We are sinners, aren't we? So when Satan says, look at their sin, look at their impurity. God, you're holy. There is no darkness in him at all, right? There's no darkness in him whatsoever. So how can God be just, be good, be righteous, and at the same time tolerate sin? Well, if he just winks at it and acts like it's not a big deal, he can't. Something has to happen. Well, we're supposed to strive for moral perfection, but we can't reach it to this side of the grave. But the good news is, we've been provided a morally perfect sacrifice on our behalf. 
Look at verse 2. He is the propitiation. 50 cent word for you. This word, uh, this exact word, is only used twice in the New Testament. and Both of them are in the book of 1 John. One's in this verse. The other is in chapter 4, verse 10, where John says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, however, it's used more often. It's used six times in the Septuagint, which is just the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and is translated variously an act of atonement, a sin offering, indebtedness, pardon, and in one verse it has no English equivalent. And other forms of this Greek word do appear in the, in the New Testament. One of them is Romans 3, 23 through 26. You know some of these verses. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. Why does God have to demonstrate His righteousness? Because if you were to go into a court of law and you were stone cold dead to rights guilty, you did it, the evidence shows you did it, You did it purposefully, premeditated, without remorse. Is that judge a good judge if he says, are you sorry you did it? And you go, yes, Mr. Judge, I'm sorry I did it. And he goes, okay, well, don't do it again. I'll let you go. Meanwhile, the family of the person that you hurt or maimed is over there screaming for justice because what you did was wrong, right? The judge can't just let you go and be a good judge. So God's got to demonstrate His righteousness in forgiving our sin because in His forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What is a propitiation? It's someone who stands in your place. How can God forgive your sin and at the same time be righteous in the way He deals with sin? Easy. Your sin is punished if you come to Jesus. It's punished in Jesus. Every piece of punishment, every little drop of it that you would have received gets put on Jesus on the cross so that when God looks at you, once you've come to Jesus Christ, He sees your sin debt as paid in full. That someone has been punished for you. That's what propitiation means. In your place. That Satan can't accuse you of sin anymore because all the sin he has to accuse you of has already been punished in Jesus Christ. Then Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 is the other place where it's used. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren that he might be, made, he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In the Old Testament... Animals were slaughtered in the place of sinful people. This continued for the entirety of the Old Covenant. But in the New Testament, Jesus takes the place of those insufficient sacrifices and He offers Himself, His morally perfect life, in your place so that someone who had no debt of their own might suffer all the punishment you have. And all of His moral perfection gets given to you in the eyes of God. He stands in your place. Um, in the United States, there is 
an interesting provision of our Constitution where this concept actually plays out. Um, Any of you familiar with double jeopardy? Double jeopardy means that you cannot be tried, convicted, and sentenced for the same crime twice. So if you get tried and you get found guilty and you get sentenced to a month in prison, you serve your time, and the day you come out, that family or whatever it is, the person whose car you hit, whatever, they can't turn around and file charges against you again for the same crime because you've already been punished for that crime. That crime's already been punished. It's already been dealt with. It's done. The Bible says that's kind of the same way sin works with Jesus. The reason that God can show grace to you is because the sin that He would have had to condemn you for has already been punished. The sentence has already been carried out. So you can go free. That is why your advocate before the Father can never lose. Because the case is already closed. It's already finished. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So here's my question. Have you lawyered up? Are you ready to go into God's courtroom? Because here's the reality. All of you are going to. All of us are going to. You're all going to stand in front of God one day. And God has given you an amazing gift. He has given you a morally perfect sacrifice that has been punished in your place, that lives forever, having been raised from the dead, standing at His right hand to forever say, He's mine. She's mine. Satan can't say anything about them. I died for their sin. They are morally perfect in your sight because I have given them my perfection. They cannot be executed because I have been executed for them. That Jesus stands ready with open arms to accept anybody who would say, I want to be one of yours. Have you? Have you come to Christ and said, I want to be one of yours? This is your opportunity to make the decision to follow Christ if you never have. Uh, Brother Jim and Miss Joyce are going to lead us in a couple verses of an invitation hymn. Uh, And then uh, if you uh, need to come forward, you have a few options. You can come down the the aisle if you need to speak to me. We can set up a time to talk more in depth. If you've got a bulletin uh, and and you're a guest with us, uh, fill out the guest card on the side of your bulletin. That's your gift to us today. Uh, Don't ask for anything else from you. Um, let me know if you need to talk or catch me at the back door. I just don't want you to leave without coming to Christ if He's calling you today. I'm going to pray, and if you need to come, you come.